in Acts 6. Um, so if you want to turn there, Acts, we're going to do over two chapters this morning on a communion Sunday. And it's warm in here. So take off your shirt and roll up your sleeves. And uh, <laughs> all the moms are like, <laughs> it's for your sanctification. Uh, anyways, I was thinking of the text this morning. We have uh, the first conflict in the church and the first murder of a Christian. And uh, Jesus told them that you can't be my follower if you won't take up your cross. That you can't have life if you won't lose your life. That if you don't hate your father and mother and brother and sister, even your own life, you can't be my follower. And uh, if you remember at the time when he was even talking about his own coming death, the disciples wouldn't believe him. Peter took him aside and rebuked him. And when he died, they were surprised, even though he had repeatedly told them, just in a few days, I'm going to die. And they didn't have the faith to believe him. And now here in the early church, he, he had been telling them, when you're dragged before the rulers to unjustly, for my name, rejoice, and then don't be afraid, I'll give you the words. And you wonder if they believed him. It's kind of truth in advertising. When I was in seminary, I, one of my closest friends, name is Reed, and we were talking about deep spiritual things, that being how we're always disappointed when you see a cheeseburger in a commercial and that it's never like that at the restaurant. Right? And uh, really, it's disappointing. Because you see this big, gorgeous burger and then you go there and, you know, there's no truth in advertising. And there is with Christ. If you're going to be a follower... You've got to lose your life if you're going to follow him. And the danger for us, though, is that we can, boys do this. When I was a young kid, I would hide a knife underneath the recliner in case a bad guy came in the house. I could stab him. You know, but I, but I wouldn't listen to my mom to do the dishes. You know what I mean? We can make these big plans for how heroic we would be in the big moment. But we won't do the little things to follow Jesus and die to ourselves, like listening to mom or treating my sister well or, you know, attending church regularly. But we'll be there in the big moment. And I think what we'll see in Acts 6 and 7, the beginning of 8, is that, you know, Jesus is no liar. And that the way that God builds his church will not at all be our ways. And so that's what I want you to tune into. The way that God will build his church is not at all how you would build the church. How God goes about expanding his kingdom, deepening our faith, bringing in the lost, is never how you would do it. It's not how you think about it. 
And so will you and I die to ourselves and follow Christ in how he wants to build his church, or will we just kind of hold on to the way that we would do it? That's what we're going to do here. I'm not going to read all of this. I'm going to read chapter 6, 15 verses, and then I'm going to flip over to the end of chapter 7 in verse 51 and then read to 8-4. And so follow along with me if you would, Acts chapter 6. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists rose against the Hebrews because their widows are being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what he and what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them, and the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And Stephen full of grace and power, was doing great miracles and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those of Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place in the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, All who sat in the council saw that his face was like that of an angel. Now to 751. So so what happens next is Stephen preaches to his interrogators. This is the very end of his sermon. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the laws delivered by the angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. 
And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Let's pray. Father, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We have sworn in Christ to keep your rules. We need life according to your word. And so, God, incline our hearts to perform your statutes and not only be hearers but doers of your word. For your word is the joy of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So just quickly... What do we see happening in this text? You'll remember that the apostles were experiencing this great unity in the church where uh, people who had wealth were selling homes and lands and giving the apostles the funds. And the apostles were using those funds to take care of the needy in the church. And here we see that a division happening in the church. It says in 6.1 that there were Hellenists and Hebrews. Now, these were all Jews. Hellenist Jews were those who didn't live in Palestine or in Jerusalem. They were in Roman Greek-speaking cities. And when it says Hebrews, those are the Jews who lived within Palestine or in Jerusalem, in that area. And so this was something of a racial national conflict. The Hellenist widows, we don't know if their complaint is true, but apparently weren't receiving the needed or the distribution. And the Hebrews were because the church at that time was led by the Hebrew Jews. And so the Hellenist Jews were feeling slighted. And there was a complaint. There was a division. There was a fight. There was a conflict. It's also noted that the church was increasing in number. And within that growth comes problems, and this is the first. So the solution was that the apostles, the twelve, they knew that it wasn't, they, they couldn't do what they were called to do, that is pray and minister the word and take care of the needy, take care of the widows within the church. And so they came up with a solution. They called all of the thousands together and said, it's not right that we give up what we're supposed to do to wait on tables. They're not talking derisively about waiting on tables. They're just saying, we can't neglect what we've been given to do for this. We have a solution. The solution is, you all nominate godly men, men of Godly character, men of good reputation, men who are full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom and will ordain them to the duty. So they created deacons. Isn't that wonderful? Because the church wants to always has take care of the whole person, the, the body and the soul, the, the stomach and the heart. So they created deacons. And again, as always in Scripture, those who are qualified and called to these offices 
The focus is their character. Are they godly? Do they love Jesus? Do they love the church? Do they follow Christ with repentance? And so they prayed for these men. They set them apart for this work. And then we note in verse 7 that the church continued to grow. And then after that kind of general thing, they focus on one of the deacons. Luke, the author, under the Holy Spirit, talking about the general group of deacons. There's seven of them. We see the names. And they focus on one of them, Stephen. Stephen, it's noted again, is full of grace and power. He's by the Holy Spirit working miracles. And he runs afoul of a group of diverse Jews from various synagogues. In verse 9, when it says the synagogue of the freedmen, the synagogue of the Cyrenians, of the Alexandrians, these are like, if you would, local Jewish worshiping people from different areas. And they're often fighting except when they find a common enemy and they find a common enemy in Stephen and they come together to dispute with Stephen. But Stephen's preaching the word. Stephen's got truth on his side and they can't defeat him. And when you can't defeat your enemy with truth, what do you do? You kill him. (laughs) And so they did what they did to Jesus. They stir up false accusers and the, I don't know if this is humorous, but they basically bring the same charge against Stephen that they did against Jesus. He said he's going to destroy the temple. Uh, And uh, so the Stephen's response in chapter seven is to preach a sermon. (laughs) Why do I laugh? He's not trying to save his skin. They accuse him of being anti-Bible, and so he preaches the Bible. And he does so, though, in a way that lets them know that he hasn't dismissed the Bible, he hasn't dismissed the law. He is basically saying throughout the sermon, you have. You're just like those who opposed Moses. You're just like those who demanded from Aaron a golden calf. And then I read at the very end of the sermon, you're just like your forefathers who killed the prophets. You killed the Son of God. And uh, he doesn't diffuse the situation, you might say. They're enraged. They gnash their teeth at him. And when Stephen actually sees into heaven, that's the last straw, and they stone him. Not that kind of stoning. They take big rocks and break his bones and smush his head and kill him. So the, this, is, this then, the murder of Stephen, leads in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 8 to the first outbreak of persecution against Christians. And it scatters all the Christians around the world. And wherever they go, they go preaching the word in verse 4 of chapter 8. So that's what's happening here. I want you to think of what's going on here. God is a God who works. God is a God who works. 
work in the Bible is held up as a good gift of God, and we are created in His image. And so throughout the Bible, we know that, say in 1 Thessalonians, if you don't work, you don't eat. In Ephesians 4, you should work to provide for yourself and your family and have enough left over to take care of others. And beginning in Genesis 2, Adam was commanded along with Eve to be fruitful, multiply, subdue. They were given work. Why? Because God is a God who works. Jesus says that he came and his father is working till now and he's working. He's doing the work that the father has given to him. What is the father's work? It's a good question, isn't it? Do you know what God the Father's work is? Because we work his work. We're doing his work. We're created in his, his image, redeemed by Christ to continue his work. What's the Father's work? Jesus said, my Father is working until now. What's the Father's work? Well, to build himself a people. To create a people that he'll call by his own name. To create a redeemed people that love him because he's first loved them. To create a people to rule for their good and to display his glory in the earth. His work is redemption. His work is building his kingdom. How? That's what we're seeing here. That's what we're seeing here. We're seeing God at work in Acts 6 and 7. We're seeing how God is at his work. The summer between my 8th grade and freshman year, my dad owned an electrical business. And by that time in my life, he, his business has grown where he was a desk jockey. He no longer wore a tool belt and got his hands dirty very often. He bid jobs and dealt with employee HR stuff. He was in the office almost all the time. But that summer, he realized that I was about to enter high school and I was going to be real busy with high school stuff and his time with me was growing short. So that summer, he bought an old van, had a cracked windshield, and for that summer, he put on the tool belt and he and I worked together. It was really sweet. And I I thought I think I, I think I thought at that time that it was sweet, and, and now looking back on it, it was really sweet. Dad was with his boy. I was working with my dad. I was doing my father's work, and I got to see my father's work. I got to see my dad work. I got to see him at work. I got to see his skill. I got to see how he dealt with customers. I I got to see my dad work. That's what we're seeing here. This is the father displaying for his children how he goes about accomplishing his work. How he goes out accomplishing the work that he's been doing from eternity until eternity to build his people. These are really, really precious verses. You get to see your father's work. The work that we're 
to be part of. How does the Father do his work? How does the Father go apart building his go go, go about building his kingdom, building his people? How? I want you to get into the weeds here, get into the details. How is the Father working to build his church, his people, his redeemed people of his son, his son's people, Christians? How does he do it? One, conflict. The Father's work through his people is to, I don't know what word here, allow, will, ordain conflict, give them men and the church to deal with the conflict. How is God going to build his church? By leading us into constant conflict and calling men to lead in it and men and women and children in the church to deal with it. And that's how he's going to build his church. And that's surprising. But we see this throughout the Bible. So in Acts chapter 6, we see in verses 1 and in 7 that the church is continuing to grow. And that the way that God is working that is by bringing the church a conflict, a complaint. Now, they just dealt with Ananias and Sapphira, but here we, as I said, have this racial, national conflict between the Hellenists and the Hebrews and the care of widows. And the shepherds of the church, the elders of the church, are given to the church to go into the conflict and fight it out, duke it out, lead, settle it. How? Well, they have a plan. They gather the church. They tell the church their plan. The church listens. They create this office of deacon that are supposed to be godly men of high character to take care of the widows. And so Christian, the Father's work is to consistently lead you into conflict, to consistently lead our church into difficulty and dispute, and give us elders and pastors and deacons to deal with it together, to figure it out according to his word. And so, do you have faith for conflict in the church. I think we have believed a lie in the church that if there's conflict, we must be doing ministry wrong. Now, the way that you think about it is if there's conflict, the pastor, maybe the elders, but typically the elders get the benefit of the doubt it's the pastor, but sometimes not. Sometimes the elders catch heck. If they're good elders, they'll get in front of the pastor 
and say, bring that stuff to me, man. <laughs> they protect the pastor. I was at a church once, and they were consistently telling me we need a new mission and vision. And so I created a mission and vision. I like Moses went up on the mountain and got a mission and vision from God, and I came down from on high and delivered it to the elders. And, and the way that the elders uh, responded was to get behind me. <laughs> they were watching. If it went well, they were going to be with me, and if it didn't, they were going to be behind me. I don't know what that has to do with what I was talking about. But I guess conflict is part of God's kingdom building. It's part of God's work. Same thing in your marriage. Same thing in your friendships. The same thing in your parenting. You have to have faith to go into the conflict. Men, this is what you're for. Wives, sometimes what you'll want to do is Keep your husband from dealing with the conflict in the way that he should. And to kind of lead a little mini rebellion of the children against him because he's being too hard or he's being too soft rather than supporting him. Sometimes it's vice versa. But you are given, we are given to deal with conflict. And you'll notice that the way they deal with conflict is to deal with church governance. <laughs> Isn't that weird? Isn't that odd? That the way that the church handles church governance is to, or to, to handle conflict is to make sure that things are in good order. Like they opened Robert's Rules of Order and made sure that the church was rightly aligned or rightly ordered. They created deacons to take care of widows. And so second, one, how does God build his kingdom by bringing us into conflict and giving us elders and deacons and the church to deal with the conflict, to have the faith to go into it. Second, how does God build his kingdom? What's the work God doing? calling us to take care of the weak and the needy and the widows, the orphans, the lonely, the hurting. I used to go, there's a denomination in the United States, and I was a part of it, and every fall and spring in our district, which is Wisconsin, Upper Peninsula, we had a fall and a spring conference. I was telling the elders this yesterday, and the, the headline, like the, they bring a speaker in from somewhere in the United States, and always the speaker was somebody with a big church, and it was different, you know, words they use, but it was the same message every time, if you want to build a big church, just do what I did. And it was always kind of like business guru, and I found it really depressing and discouraging because I was pastoring a, you know, a little church in a little place and I am not uh, a CEO kind of guy. I like to shepherd people. 
I'm not a systems creator. I, I'm not administratively inept, but I just found it so oppressive. And reflecting on that, do you know what they never talked about to honor God in building his church? You know what they never, none of those guys ever preached about? Taking care of widows. Taking care of orphans. Never was that part of their church growth plan for my life. God's work in Acts 6, where he knows he's building his church, is to make sure that the church is taking care of the most vulnerable and needy among them. To not at all be concerned about numbers, but to make sure that everything was in order so that nobody lacked care. And I notice that in the church, those of you most concerned about evangelism, most concerned about the church growing, hardly ever talk about the church taking care of its widows or its orphans. Or... And what is the work God the Father is doing? He's adopting orphans. He's shepherding the shepherdless. There's a few moments in Jesus' time on earth where he was full of sorrow and lament. And one of them was when he stood looking at Jerusalem and realized how rebellious they were. And you know, without making it like hallmarky, he he was brokenhearted. Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under wings, and you would not. They were like sheep without a shepherd. What is the work that God the Father is doing? Bringing us into conflict and making sure the church focuses on the care of its most vulnerable and needy. That's what builds this church. And it's really good work. This is what we want to do as a church. We want to raise up church fathers and church mothers who are not afraid of conflict, who don't see conflict as a evil, as something to cause us to think we better find another church because that church isn't healthy, as not an opportunity to undermine the authority in the church or to create a little group of people who I'll bring your complaints. But it's an opportunity to go into the conflict and have the faith to believe Jesus' words, that blessed are the peacemakers, who are willing to fight the good fight. That's the work of God.
That's the Father's work. And to be the kind of church where we don't neglect the sheep who need help. That we care very little if we're getting our way of whether Joe is playing the drums too loud or too soft. (laughs) You don't lift a hand to clean a widow's gutters. Where you're consistently irritated that children are too loud in the service. But you won't ask the mother and father if you could babysit a night so they could have a date night. What is the work of God the Father? It is to send his son to reconcile us who are in conflict against him by the blood of his son and to adopt us orphans, vulnerable, weak, and so he says now, children, go do the work. Stephen is a really good example of this work. What I want to draw your attention to is Stephen. Just, just a few things. Just notice Stephen's demeanor. Look at chapter 7, verse 2. So you got to put yourself here, okay? you got to put yourself in the situation. Stephen's a godly man. He's just been appointed as one of the first deacons. And the next thing he finds himself is in court facing accusers who are just lying about him. How does he address his accusers? You bunch of tyrants. No. How does he address them? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers. Oh, if that isn't convicting, you are very unaware of yourself. I want the next time you're at work and have a dispute with your supervisor to address him as father. I want the next time you're talking with another believer about President Biden to refer to him as father. I don't really want that. I'm not demanding that of you. But doesn't that reveal how rebellious we are? Look at his spirit. Look at Stephen's humility, his submissiveness to men that he knows are lying about him and are about to kill him. He is not unaware of where this is going. Fathers and brothers... And then, of course, at the end, 59 and 60, chapter 7, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Lord, do not hold this sin against him. Oh, that God might 
give us his Holy Spirit that we might have this kind of spirit. <clears throat> so that's one thing to consider about Stephen. Stephen's sermon is fire, but it's meant to bring about repentance. In chapter 6, verse 7, it's not only noted that the church is increasing and multiplying, that a great many priests are becoming obedient to the faith. This is what really touched off the conflict that Jewish pastors, Jewish leaders, Jewish priests were becoming Christians. And Stephen, like Peter before, like Christ, means to cut them to their heart. So he preaches a sermon. And this sermon is the most important sermon that's ever been preached in the history of the church. And not because it was perfect, not because it was so eloquent, but because God used it to bring persecution into his church and scatter his church all over the globe. And in chapter 8, verse 4, we read that those who were scattered went about preaching the word. The Father's work is always going to be accomplished by the preaching of his people. And Stephen's a model of this. The Father's work is always by the word. We were talking about this yesterday in our time of elders, and I was relating a story of uh, Martin Luther, the German reformer. He was, you know, I think being flattered of all the good work he did. And he responded like, all that I did was drink German beer with my Wittenberg friends. The word did the work. The word did the work. Now, the preaching here that Stephen intended to cut the heart of his hearers and bring them to repentance only further hardened them heart, hardened their hearts. And, and so don't forget this, brothers and sisters. Often you have one of two effects in your life. It is either going to soften your heart and lead you to repentance and to greater love for Christ and his people, or it's going to further harden your heart. It's either or. And so young folks, the most important thing in your life is that you have a tender heart towards God's word. That you do not despise the instruction of your fathers and mothers. That you have a tender heart to the truth of God. And so all that to say, how many of you, this is something that caught me funny. If you're with, a, let's say, a, um, a uh, mechanic or maybe with an engineer, they, they, engineers have jokes that only engineers get and everybody else rolls their eyes. And, you know, I'm sure Chris with his bees has jokes that only beekeepers think are funny and everybody else thinks it's geeky. I'm a pastor, and so one of the things I thought was geeky that Okay, if I was going to write a book on how to grow your church, there'd be two chapters. One, take care of the widows. Number two, find a deacon to go get murdered. (laughs) 
Yeah. And so as elders, we were talking about which deacon would it be <laughs> yesterday. My vote was Dave Richmond because he's lived a good, long, full life. <laughs> in jest, right? God's ways are not our ways in the church. It isn't by our perfection. It isn't by our being PC. It, it isn't by our perfect worship that everybody loves. It isn't by the appearance of our perfect marriages and our perfect children and our perfect Facebook posts. It isn't by our being able to give a perfect answer to every question. It isn't by our always responding to every situation perfectly. That is not how God is going to build our church. It is by having good church governance and deacons and elders. It is by making sure that we spend ourselves on behalf of the vulnerable and needy. And it is by us never, ever being ashamed of the preaching of God's word. That's it. And we attend to those things, and God will attend to the growth. We attend to those things, and God attends to the growth. Amen? Yeah? You believe it? Hope so. Let's pray. We'll take communion. Father, I pray that we would have the faith for this. I, I know I don't. <laughs> um, but God, give us the faith to, as men, be challenged to live godly and so be able to elder and deacon or to be able to be a non-titled elder deacon who takes care of people. That we as a church would give ourselves the taking care of those who need that we would never be ashamed of your word, that we would love each other, deal with conflict, that we'd have the humility to set aside and realize things that we think are inherent or so important to the growing of the church and realize that your ways are not ours, that you will grow or shrink the church as you see fit, but may we be found faithful. And so God help us. In Jesus' name. Amen.